Merci beaucoup. Great. All right. Well, I guess people will continue trickling in. There's Steve. But, uh, let's see. If I compare who's here to the list of questions, Alex Kelly is not here, but Nate is. And Well, Alex, uh, Alex's question would be an interesting one to answer. Um, I think, well, we'll wait and see if Alex shows up and then I'll go ahead and start. So I'm going to begin with Nate's question. And if I forget and Alex shows up, remind me to go back to his question and we'll talk about it. Okay, so <clears throat> so Nate says, um, <clears throat> in TMI, you mentioned that insight into no-self is what brings people to achieve first path. You've also mentioned elsewhere that there are different gateways from first path to second path, and that affects the progression of how one achieves third path and beyond. I was wondering if you could talk about the different progressions that could happen. Well, just as with first path, yes, there are, uh, there are different gateways to second path. And those two, they're, they're closely related. Uh, and so they do, they do have an effect on the way that a person will tend to approach doing the work of second path but they're not they're not tremendously different and they essentially can come to the same result now what these are what the form that these gateways take is one uh one uses the uh insight into suffering uh in terms of the uh, second of the four truths, the, uh, the truth of the cause of suffering being craving. And the other is based on the recognition that the attachment to self is the cause of craving and suffering. So you see, since self-attachment gives rise to craving and craving gives rise to suffering, that it's really sort of what uh, what point in those progress in in, in the in, in the progression of those three that the person insight focuses in on. Uh, if it focuses in on the suffering craving connection, or it focuses in more on the uh, uh, craving uh, self clinging connection. So typically, the form that that it's a deepening of the insight of an insight that you've already achieved as a part of stream entry, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's drilling into it into a much deeper way. 
So it, the f two forms that it usually takes is that on the one hand, a person will have this tremendous realization that um, everything that, uh, not everything, but most of the things that they've ever said and done and even their thoughts are based in self-clinging. And uh, this, this is experienced as a rather horrifying personal realization. Uh, and they sort of e evolve through the uh, phases of uh, recognition, being horrified by it, uh, what can I do about it, um, and the uh, the clarification that it brings is that uh, uh, essentially that their behavior has been a man manifested as craving, and that craving has been based in self-clinging, and so therefore they've done all kinds of harm to themselves and others as a result of that. And what this does is uh, it has a very empowering effect. Now to understand that empowering effect, we can look at the other way that uh, this happens, is with somebody is, uh, and, and there's a practice that actually leads to this uh, specifically, you know, just as there are certain practices that lead towards insight into emptiness or insight into, uh, or in, into uh, impermanence and so forth. Uh, a, a practice of examining mental states. Now, these are the, this is the third application of the four application of mindfulness, mindfulness of mental states. And in the process of doing that, one comes to realize that the only truly satisfactory mental states that they've ever experienced are those that were completely free of, of craving. And they recognize craving for, uh, as, the, as the true enemy to a degree that they never have before. This is, this is where the empowerment comes in in either case, is recognize that craving is much easier to recognize with a high degree of consistency with the mindfulness that a, that you, a person has having, having had uh, either of these gateway experiences. And so craving becomes the focus no matter which is a gateway. And uh, craving originates with self-clinging and craving results in suffering and dissatisfactoriness. Now this, uh, the realization of dissatisfactoriness is, is just exactly that. There has never been, except on those occasions where there was no craving, there's never truly been a sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, being at ease, content, so forth. And that this is where the, the, this is a deepening of insight into the nature of suffering, and it's also a deepening of insight into uh, uh, no self, because the, the realization is that uh, if, if I can more fully overcome the self-clinging that gives rise to craving, then I can overcome suffering. And that's the empowerment that defines in terms of the 10-fetter model, which was the Buddha's 
way of describing the four paths. He described the attainment of second path, or rather, yeah, yes, the attainment of second path as a tremendous attenuation of the, uh, of the power of craving and self-clinging over the practitioner. And the work of, self path, uh, of second path is to overcome all of the manifestations of craving uh, for the, uh, of the sense realm, of, of the material realm, the form realm. And so the, a practitioner on first path is not aware until they reach this point of maturation and transition to second path of the degree to which craving and suffering has continued to manifest itself in, in their lives. But they become very aware of it. But uh, now they have the power to confront craving whenever it arises. They become uh, able to recognize subtler forms of craving. And an example of a very subtle form of craving, which I think any of you can recognize, craving itself, although it ultimately causes suffering, just as uh, getting what you want ultimately causes suffering, but craving itself has an aspect of pleasure that attracts us uh, to it. Uh, we, we actually seek out different forms of craving in order to uh, uh, enjoy the pleasure that's associated with the state of craving and the anticipation of fulfillment. But that, too, creates a disturbance of the mind and a suffering and dissatisfaction, a, a dukkha. Uh, the word suffering in English is always understood in a more uh, extreme form. But what, what we have to recognize with the word dukkha is that it covers the entire range. Uh, from, from, uh, from the kind of dissatisfaction that some people even mistake for uh, um, things being okay. And that's really what this transition is about. So uh, depending on which is the experiential gateway and which is the insight that triggers the deepening of really all of the insights that leads to this empowerment uh, that will have uh, uh, inevitably have a certain effect on the way the person experiences the work of second path whether it, it has uh, how whether it's the focus on craving gives rise to dukkha or whether it's on the focus of craving is an indicator of self-cleaning clinging now i would be hesitant to say that either one of these gateways i i think uh, and uh, I, I'm kind of going along with the uh, commentaries on this, which refers, which say to that the gateways are a reflection of different personality types. And uh, so I think there are that whether it's through craving or whether it's through, through recognition of self clinging that one uh, makes the transition from first to second path. The significance of that is more in terms of you know the 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 nature of that person um, now some arguments can and have been made 
that to recognize the element of self-clinging is because it is moving us closer to the ultimate elimination of the uh, this inherent sense that we are uh, uh, a separate self that uh, uh, is characteristic of fourth path, that uh, this is a superior uh, uh, this is a pure, superior way of progressing through second path, but I'm uh, I'm rather unconvinced of that. I think that um, uh, if if your mind tends to gravitate towards recognition of of the problem uh, in one way rather than the other, then it probably follows that you're going to make the most rapid progression through second path, following your natural inclinations. Uh, of course, being very clear on the uh, self-clinging, craving, dukkha, uh, you know, the, the, the sequential, actually, we can think of it sequential, but they actually are feeding back on each other, as you realize. Craving reinforces self-clinging. A suffering reinforces, or dukkha reinforces self-clinging. Uh, dukkha uh, itself gives rise to craving, right? And so uh, these are not really linear, but you can see how a linear construct uh, is an easy way for us to talk about them. So what do you think, Nate? Does that kind of get to what you were talking about? Yeah, it definitely does. I, I think... Um like, that's very interesting that there are different gateways. And I was also thinking, like, how does that affect, like, progression beyond second path? Because I've heard people say, like, um, once you've achieved first path, progression to the second path is almost, like, natural. But, like, uh, to go beyond that is, like, a little bit more difficult. Well, now I certainly agree with um, that statement. But that has more to do with the uh, how you've gone about achieving uh, first path and the kind of practice that you that you've the kind of mental training that's done not just uh, during during first path but the preceded first path. Now, um, what what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do with my students and in TMI is to develop those mental faculties. So you've developed as a trait, not just as a state that you can induce when the circumstances are right, but as a trait, very powerful metacognitive introspective awareness. And the uh, sort of apana samadhi, I call it stability of attention, but uh, Attention comes in, uh, in, in different degrees of stability, and the ultimate stability of attention is apana, where, where it's the complete absorption of attention into its object, even though it may be only for a second, and it may be a whole series of objects. When it's on any object, it's totally on that object. Uh, so by cultivating this kind of mental stability, our, our mental faculties, stability of attention, and very powerful mindfulness in the form of metacognitive introspective awareness, it becomes much easier to progress to second path and beyond second path. Uh, you can see the value of uh, 
uh, metacognitive introspective awareness in doing the work of second path that I just described. Well, it's that much more important uh, when it comes to third path. So the degree to which the mental training and the practices that a person has done to arrive at first path and perhaps second path, uh, the, whatever whatever shortcuts, whatever shortcomings there are of that methodology, they're going to catch up with them in, in, in the higher paths. And this explains why people who practice in certain ways uh, often spend a very, very long time in first path. And, um, uh, and in certain traditions, uh, very few people get beyond second path. Uh, unless they develop the particular skills that uh, they neglected along the way. Now, there's no, they can actually develop those skills much more readily and much more easily having already reached those path attainments. I mean, to, to be able to meditate in a state where the hindrances are no longer disturbing, where there's a, you know, where you ha already have a lot of insight, uh, it, you, a person can easily catch up. But uh, this is another way of understanding uh, the Yuganada Sutta, where the Buddha says that for those who have developed uh, vipassana, go and uh, learn, go find the teacher and learn samatha. For those that have primarily developed samatha, uh, but not vipassana, go and uh, find somebody that teaches uh, uh, vipassana. But uh, the uh, uh, the but the name of the sutta is uh, yuganada means yoked together, and this is this is uh, the other way that he suggests is that you develop samatha and vipassana together. Right? So this, of course. I mean, you can apply this to how one goes about reaching stream entry. You know, somebody might develop, it doesn't happen very often that somebody actually achieves a high level of samatha without vipassana, but it can happen. Uh, and also, uh, it can happen that somebody can achieve vipassana without having really developed samatha. I mean, the, the dry vipassana practices uh, in their various forms do exactly this. But even after stream entry has been reached, the same principles apply. That samatha and especially the, the traits that it develops, and the same things are present in these other paths, but they're not developed to the point of being traits. They're developed to the point of being states that can be temporarily induced, uh, perhaps in a retreat, and uh, perhaps and as a means to give rise to insight, but they aren't traits that a person can apply in their daily life, and that they that are ever uh, that are always available to them in their practice at any time. So um, that's the sense in which uh, there are some important differences in uh, in modes of practice and what what you've done what the preparatory work is that you've done with your mind and the influence that it's going to have on your ability to proceed through the uh, higher paths. That help? Yeah, definitely. 
I thought. Yeah, so let's look at uh, the next question. Is, is Jared James here? Yep, I'm here. Oh, great. Okay. I get to, I get to talk about your question. <laughs> okay. You say, if one were to achieve first path from an insight into interconnectedness, um, so what you're saying is that would really be the gateway insight for, for this person, resulting in a few week long no self experience and brought on by experiencing the introspective links of dependent origination, but not while meditating, would you recommend doing any specific practices to attempt to rec recreate the inside experience? Would this advice change depending on their current TMI stage? Well, if, if you have had uh, the kind of uh, insight experience where there are multiple insights that are joining together here, um, you, if you don't cross the line uh, of stream entry, you're very, very close to it. Uh, in terms of the, the practices, uh, the practices that gave rise to that insight would be good ones to use. Now, if you're at stage six, um, it might not be too easy. The other thing that is really important to practice and this would especially be the case if it hasn't actually brought you uh, across the barrier to stream entry, is that you continue to try to experience the world from the perspective or to see how, let's put it this way, to see how this perspective that was so uh, totally clear during the insight experience how it, is, it still applies and is valid in your ongoing daily experience of, of everything else. This is, this, is a, this is a very good way to uh, allow these insights to, uh, uh, to deepen and mature and bring you to stream entry. Uh, or if you have, if they've already brought you to stream entry, to uh, begin uh, to to continue the work that constitutes the work of first path. Now, if somebody is at stage six, I would strongly encourage them to, to continue to complete the development of uh, uh, exclusive attention and powerful metacognitive introspective awareness. Because then, uh, especially to the point of effortlessness, because then, uh, since the gateway insight was the links of dependent origination, and I, I would suspect if it led to no self, it must also have gone beyond the links of dependent origination to the doctrine of dependent origination itself which says that absolutely everything is a result of causes and conditions and is in turn causes and conditions for everything else and that therefore everything is causally interdependent. So um, these are the kinds of, uh, the practices in stage eight are insight practices, that, uh, some of which are working on exactly the same kind of insight 
uh, that uh, you have, uh, or I'm, I'm going to say you, uh, I, I don't know whether you're speaking personally or not, but uh, to that person I would say the kinds of insights that you have are going to be, you know, they're, they're very much in line with the practices in uh, stage eight. And so one of the best things that you could do for yourself is to continue the work of stage six into the effortlessness of stage seven so that you can do these practices and so that you can progress with this very powerful metacognitive introspective awareness and this, and this laser-like attention that can be directed wherever it needs to be directed by this powerful mindfulness. So that it's it's being put to its optimal and ideal use. So this just to to sum it up, there's two things. One is continue to develop those mental faculties, and then take the gift that you've already received in terms of uh, the degree of insight that some part of your mind has already assimilated, and to the degree that you can. Keep that alive and growing and spreading within your mind system. Um, in circumstances where it's not very apparent, recollect it and see its truth in those situations as well. Very good right. question. Thank, Thank you, so you for asking. <laughs> okay. Mike. Mike here. Hmm. Yeah, okay. It's Kevin here. Okay, we can still. Yes, hello. Oh, you're here. Okay, great, Kevin. Yes, okay. Can you please elaborate on the material in stages four and five and the moments of consciousness model? Regarding the best approach to setting conscious intention, generate perceiving moments of attention and awareness. In stage five, I see multiple conscious intentions. Intention to observe the meditation object. Intention to maintain continuous extra and introspective awareness. Intention to detect subtle dullness. Intention to intensify vividness of attention. Uh, but when sitting in stage the four in the stage four five zone after completing the stage four tra transition, and while at breath at the nose, I'm not sure best to how to handle these multiple intentions, and what an optimal approach feels like. Do I consciously set each separate intention one after the other, or is it better to somehow fuse multiple intentions into a single holistic meta attention? which is asserted continuously. Okay, so um, what you don't want to do is to sort of shift into uh, this um, perfectionistic um, uh, uh, try, trying to Trying to do more than you need to do, setting too too step too high a standard. Like I am going to manage to hold all of these intentions in my mind simultaneously, or I am going to somehow 
integrate all of these intentions into uh, into one meta attention. Those would be kind of extremes, but the middle way between them is really perfect. Um, now you can think of the goal of stage five as being uh, increasing the power of consciousness and these different uh, intentions as being means to do that. Uh, increasing the power of mindfulness corresponds to decreasing dullness. So detecting subtle dullness is essential to overcoming subtle dullness. So take whatever aspect of these intentions that for you uh, at, uh, at any given time in the process, and it'll change, but as, as you're making that transition, something is going to be the easiest way for you to frame your intentions for your practice. For example, and, and this, would, this would be a really good starting point, is that um, you begin with trying to detect subtle dullness. And then as a, as a part of that is the, an introspective awareness of the, the vividness and clarity of your attention and, and your awareness. So uh, the, other, the other intentions uh, sort of come along with it. But take whatever, whatever is the best way of framing your intentions that feels most appropriate when, when you begin. And of course, you can't do much to correct uh, subtle dullness until you can recognize it. And the ways to recognize it is by coming to the place where you have enough introspective awareness to recognize that the, the clarity of either or both uh, uh, awareness and attention has diminished. Do you follow me on this? So and don't try to treat them as separate intentions that you've, you've, all got, you've got to do this incredible juggling act of holding them all at once. And don't feel like you've got to, I mean, they're going to all come together by themselves. So let that, that merging into a single meta-attention, let it develop on its own. Okay, okay. That, that, that's great. I mean, I know, you know, when I was reading stage five, it really, I really loved, you know, because I was struggling in stage four. It's like, okay, how do I get these more perceiving mind moments, you know? Right. You know right. It's like, oh, I really want to do that. How do I do that? So now I'm really loving the, okay, conscious intention, that's great. But, you know, I feel like I'm juggling all these different, you know, intentions. And is it wrong to feel like there should be a feeling of, of this intention setting? I mean, it's, I know it's a mental, I know it's a mental activity. It almost feels like attention, actually. But the more I was reading it, it almost felt like, there's a feeling to it. Did you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Yes, uh, and that feeling, that uh, the feeling to intention is that's that's how the intention is manifesting continuously in awareness. Okay, and so uh, let's see. Was it you or someone else uh, referred to? Uh, I think it must have been someone else 
yeah, uh, referred to doing things like the repeating the word uh, vividness or something like this to, to act as a as a, a, a trigger to help them zero in, focus in, maintain that attention, uh, and not get into dullness. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, doing things like that. But what you're doing when you do that is uh, you're actually bringing attention, you're, you're taking tension, attention away from the breath to, uh, to shift it to the concept of intention and the word vividness. So that's fine as an initial kind of approach, to, uh, but, but you want to let that go as, as soon as you... You, instead, you the intention begins to just be the I said you, the framing of your mind, or it's 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 sort of the background state of your mind that is just continuously. Uh, I I I know where I'm heading, and where the emphasis is, you just you just go with go with the feeling. Right. I'm trying to stay away from a lot of concepts when I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to not add a bunch of layers that I know I'm going to have to try and remove later. Right. But am I correct in understanding that it's probably not a good thing to be trying to set an intention of I'm intending to create, I mean, to work with the concept itself. Like I'm intending to create more perceiving mind moments. That's very conceptual, right? I mean, yes. is that a skillful thing to try to do initially or just stay with vividness? Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. And this is, you know, uh, the uh, uh, preparation for meditation, that is the first step in the preparation for meditation is to reflect on your meditation up to now and choose what you would form the intention for what you would like to happen in this meditation. And then the next step is to not be attached to it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I would encourage you to go ahead and use the, you use, prepare for your meditation in exactly the same way that's described there. You don't necessarily, I'm sure some of the, uh, some of the parts of the preparation for meditation, you probably don't need to do They become very automatic. But that kind of, that initial intention setting, that's where the concept conceptualization should happen, okay? You, concepts are there, and then once you're sitting and once you're doing the practice, you just want to keep that, that feeling uh, alive of you know, you know what you're doing, you know where you're going, you know what you want to see happen, and, um, and you're not grasping after it. So... Doing, doing, doing both of those conceptually at the beginning will be very helpful. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Most welcome. Yes. Um, Adrian. Not here. Steve's here. Steve's here. Okay. All right. There are 10 stages in TMI and 16 parts in the Anapanasati Sutta. Is there a correlation between TMI stages and the parts of the Anapanasati Sutta? If there is a correlation, how do they match up? Uh, well, Steve, you'll notice that there are uh, scattered throughout the book 
uh, excerpts from the uh, uh, 16 parts of the Yanapanasati Sutra. But um, I can just uh, kind of sum that, that up. Um, the, first, uh, the first tetrad is uh, uh, breathing long, breathing short, experiencing the uh, whole body with the breath, uh, and uh, tranquilizing bodily activities. Now, these are all come under the heading of contemplation of the body. Uh, when we're, uh, uh, if, if you relate it to Satipatthana. And uh, now, the second is contemplation uh, of feelings, and that really isn't directly uh, addressed except in uh, experiencing of bliss. Let, let's go through the second tetrad, okay, which is the uh, uh, experiencing of uh, piti, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of joy, uh, of, of rapture. Uh, the second is the experiencing of, of sukha, uh, you know, bliss, happiness. Uh, the third part of the second tetrad is experiencing uh, the experiencing these as mental formations, and the fourth is the tranquilization of mental formations. Now, before I go on to the next tetrad, um, um, the first three of the first tetrad, breathing long, breathing short, experiencing the whole body, this really describes through stage six, and then seven is a, a transition. The, um, the calming of the bodily formations, which is uh, the fourth uh, of the first tetrads, actually goes together in, in, the, ten, uh, uh, in, in the ten stages that I've outlined with uh, uh, the experiencing of uh, PT and the experiencing of Sukha. So uh, the fourth and the first two of the second tetrad, so we'll call them the fourth, fifth, and sixth of the 16, those are really all stage eight. And uh, uh, then the seventh and eighth, the, uh, the uh, recognition of, uh, uh, mental, uh, of mental formations and the tranquilizing of mental formations is the, uh, the experiencing of mental formations and tranquilizing of mental formations, I, I should say. Uh, it would be a better way of putting it. I mean, it'd be easier if I had a translation in front, in front of me. I, I do have a translation that I made myself. Anyway, but the experiencing of mental formations and the tranquilizing of mental formations, I think you can recognize as being, uh, that's, that's the work that's happening in, uh, that's where stage eight goes into stage nine. And uh, the, uh, what, what had been the, uh, very energetic uh, aspect of PT uh, leads into tranquility. So uh, now 
the third tetrad, and this would be numbers 9, 10, 11, and 12, uh, which are, uh, let me see, I'll, I'll find my, my translation in, in the book here. <laughs> I was trying to avoid having to, to flip through all the pages of the book, but it's going to be easier. Okay. Experiencing the mind while breathing in, he trains himself. Uh, and while breathing out, making the mind tranquil and fresh, breathing in and breathing out, concentrating the mind while breathing in and breathing out, and releasing the mind while breathing in and breathing out. These are essentially the practice of samadhi. So um, you could you could perhaps take uh, the the eighth part uh, of, of the eighth item of the 16 in Anapanasati, the tranquilizing of mental activities and the, uh, the, uh, the ninth one, experiencing the mind, the 10th one, uh, which is making the mind tranquil and fresh. And uh, the um, 11th and 12th as being, what ha well, you could, you could take eight, nine, and ten in particular as being uh, what the main thing that's happening in uh, stage nine, but there is also uh, number eleven, uh, the uh, concentrating the mind while breathing in is obviously a part of stage nine. But you could take this whole tetrad as describing being in the state of samadhi on a continuous basis. So that would correspond to, uh, that part of the Anapanasata Sutta would correspond to the way that one is practicing in stage 10. So you have the, the uh, tranquilizing and the experiencing and the, the refreshing, refreshing of the mind that from stage nine, in stage nine you've actually entered into uh, shamatha, and then the full maturation of continuous ongoing shamatha really corresponds to 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now, if you look at 13, 14, 15, and 16, which is the contemplation of impermanence and the contemplation of uh, fading away and the contemplation of cessation and of relinquishment, now these are all referring to uh, insight. So, and they're referring specifically to uh, the uh, uh, insight and development uh, through cessation and would be into uh, path attainment. So the first three, uh, there is this correspondence in the book. Uh, I think the ones for stage, stage eight, uh, I might have put at the end of uh, stage seven, if I remember correctly. Should read my own book more often. Yeah, all right, here it is. Yes, uh, at the now at the end of stage seven is as experiencing joy and experiencing pleasure. Let's see what I say. Stage eight. 
Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. That, uh, all right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm actually talking about stage eight at the end of stage seven. Okay. And I say stage eight is about conditioning the mind to sustain a high degree of unification, even in the face of hindrances. Then meditative joy is fully developed and the glue has set. So this is at the end of stage seven, but I'm talking about stage eight. And that's where I say experiencing joy while breathing in and breathing out and experiencing pleasure while breathing in and breathing out. So those correspond to five and six in the Anapanasati sequence. So that's, uh, and, and that's what I'd said earlier, that four, five, and six are really descriptions of uh, pacification of the senses, that's the calming of the bodily formations, uh, is, is number four. Number five, the, the experiencing of uh, PT, uh, joy, uh, reaching the grade five PT, and the uh, bliss of mental and physical pliancy, which is uh, uh, the sukha or pleasure that is number six in the Anapanasati. So four, five, and six are stage eight, and they're actually inserted in the book in at the end of stage seven when talking about stage eight so if you go to the book you'll be able you should be able to follow the sequence of all 12 of them because uh, uh that was that was very much in my mind and in my consciousness as i was uh as i was uh writing that and and, and that's why i added those quotes thank you very much it's very helpful. Good. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's this amount of information. I wish I had, you know, a blackboard and I could write on it and things like that. <laughs> it would make it easier. Trying to do it verbally only, I, I, I feel like, gee, to, uh, is, am I making it more obscure or, or am I actually clarifying it? But at least you get to listen to the recording again. <laughs> anyway, great question. And, uh, uh, I, I enjoyed pointing that out. All right. Uh, let's see what's next here. Um, the next person is here is William. Next person is William. Okay. Yes. All right. <clears throat> I have listened to virtually all of the guided meditations found on dharmatreasure.org. In all the cases that I can remember, the guided meditations begin with a period of open awareness, being in the present moment with sounds and bodily sensations, and only giving attention to thoughts that pertain to bodily adjustments in the present moment. Matthew Immergut described this as being the entry protocol. I've never heard that you formally discuss this after having listened to all your discourses that are available on Dharma Treasure, and I wonder what you deem to be important lessons to be learned during this entry protocol. Well, there are, there are quite a few. Uh, but first of all, let me point out that this is the first step in the fourth in the four step transition that's described for stage one. Do you recognize it? William? You sure William's here? <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, there you are. Okay. Yeah, do you recognize that as, as the, the first step in the four-step transition? 
So let's think of all the things that you're doing when that is um, you're, first of all, you're coming into the present and uh, in a variety of ways. You're, you're, you're opening your awareness up to everything that's in the present. You're allowing your attention to explore the present. And as far as your thoughts go, what you're doing is you're only giving attention to those that are, have to do with the present. And so that would include things like, well, my legs don't feel quite right, so I'm going to readjust them. So this is, this is the beginning of, uh, in uh, a lot of these guided meditations, one of the things that I'm trying to help people to recognize uh, is the distinction between attention and awareness and what it means to be present and how uh, awareness is naturally present while attention is attention is the rascal that's always trying to run off to some other place or some other time right so it's uh, it's kind of pointing that out and it's um, and when you put it together with everything else it's the beginning of learning the distinction between uh, attention and awareness uh, in terms of uh, not wanting to pay attention to thoughts that inevitably arise that are not to do with the present you're already exercising introspective awareness and that's so you're you're already starting you're getting into this mode of into the meditation mode and then if you if you take it stepwise through the other three steps then it becomes just a very gentle transition and at each each of the next uh, the, well, the st step two and step three of that four-step transition, that's giving you lots of opportunity to work with attention and awareness, recognize the distinctions between them, recognize how they interact and how they work together. And, to, uh, as, and the more experienced you become in, in your meditation, you know, when you're at stage four, stage five, stage six, and if you're doing, still doing this uh, four-step transition, which is not a bad idea at all, you're going to be able to apply everything that you learn to the events that are taking place as you are gradually restricting the scope in which you, uh, or the, let's say the range in which you allow your attention to move, and at the same time, uh, maintaining a high level of awareness and then it's also the distinction between introspective and extrospective awareness that's also going to be coming clear. Now, somebody who's in stage one, you know, they're, they're just kind of following the description. But somebody that's in stage four or stage five is going to get a lot more juice out of this four-step transition. And uh, the, uh, the main effect is that by the time you're actually following the breath, sensations at the nose you're really really solidly in so is that or, or did i miss the point of your question did I get to it I, I think you're muted no can't hear you for some reason oh. 
Oh, that's too bad. I'd love to hear what you say. Um, um, okay, well, I hope it's helpful. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you could put your comments in the chat if, if you open the chat on your screen. Yeah, you could type in your comments there. Um, it, at the, if you bring your cursor down towards the bottom of the screen, a uh, menu will appear, and chat is one of the items. Okay, well maybe uh, we should we should go on. I, I'm I'm sorry, I apologize that this happened. But uh, uh, all right. Janavi, uh, Joel. I don't think anybody else is here. Okay, well, let's go back and do some of the ones that uh, people that aren't here because they're certainly, uh, I, I, I know we thought this might be a better time for a lot of people, but <laughs> perhaps it's not. Uh, anyway, let's, let's go ahead and go back to, uh, we can go back to Alex Kelly's question. Um, please, can you shed some light on the phrase Yoniso Manasakara, which often appears in the suttas? In one sutta, the Buddha says it is the food for development of mindfulness and clear comprehension, which it absolutely is. Now, um, Manasakara, you know, um, Manas is it's 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 actually the same root as mind, and manasikara is uh, often equated with attention. But you have to recall that the people who are translating uh, manasikara as attention uh, probably don't have any kind of clear distinction between uh, awareness and attention. So I would, and um, to treat it as mind, uh, we'd have to remember that there's a large part of the mind that's unconscious. So um, a literal meaning of it would might be uh, that which occupies the mind or the occupation of the mind. Um, or the preoccupation of the mind. Manasikara. Uh, now, we can treat it as attention for the sake of this discussion because what, when, what usually happens when somebody is preoccupied with something, uh, that it is the focus of their attention. It's the ongoing focus of their attention. 
And as a matter of fact, if you are, if you are mentally engaged with something, uh, one thought or idea is leading to another thought or idea. So uh, manasikara is, is, it's what the mind, and here we mean the conscious mind via the unconscious. What, what, the only thing we experience is what is in consciousness. But this is what the mind is preoccupied with. This is what the mind is engaged with. And our conscious experience of it is it's what we're thinking about or what we're contemplating, what we're paying attention to. Now, Yoniso has meanings that correspond to uh, appropriate, wholesome, um, wise. So you could, if the wise, you could think of this as wise uh, utilization of, of consciousness. Uh, you could think appropriate attention. Uh, and uh, wise attention, appropriate attention, things like that. Any of these terms, I think, would convey the, 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 enough of the essence of this that we can see where it fits in. Okay, now an ordinary person has uh, inappropriate or unwise attention and awareness because it, it is usually chasing after uh, objects of uh, uh, desire and aversion, right? And it is obsessed with uh, or, or engaged with or uh, involved with um, something that has its roots in uh, self-clinging and craving. So that makes it very unskillful. That makes it very inappropriate. That makes it very unwholesome. So uh, uh, the negation of that Yoniso, Ayoniso, would be what we're talking about is the problem that the typical worldling is dealing with and the reason that they might come to this practice. Now, if we just look at meditation practice, okay, what meditation practice is all about is learning to use your mind wisely and then extend that to Dharma practice and right understanding and the practice of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of, of virtue, you know, uh, right, right uh, thought and intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Uh, these, you know, so in meditation and in the practice of sila, what we're doing is we, we are practicing appropriate or wise attention. We are practicing appropriate or wise engagement of our mind. Uh, and in meditation, we're using it in a highly specific way. Now, let's go back to, to I'm going to go back to, I'm, from looking at you to looking at uh, Alex's question. Um, he says, in one sutta, it is the food for the development of sati and for sati sampajana. And truer words could not be said because, you know, uh, uh, Awareness, as, as awareness develops into uh, mindfulness, and as attention and awareness are working together in an optimal way, and as one's knowledge and understanding of the Dharma develop, then one is 
continuously practicing Yoniso Manasakara. When you are doing formal practice, walking meditation, sitting meditation, of, of all kinds of things like that, now what you're doing is you're, you're training your mind to function in this highly mindful way. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yoniso Manasakara is what allows you to develop powerful mindfulness. And when it becomes sufficiently powerful, and when that metacognitive introspective aspect of, of awareness uh, becomes fully developed, you now have uh, the sati that is sampajana, the complete understanding. So sati is basically knowing what you're doing, knowing where you are, knowing what's happening in your immediate environment. Environment. Sampajana is that introspective awareness of what is the in thoughts and intentions that are motivating the particular uh, things that are coming to mind that you might say, or the actions that you might perform, or the choices that you might make. Okay, so the, the, that now now where you have not only sati the mindfulness of what you're doing, but also what is, be, what is driving the intentions behind your thought, speech, and behavior, and then recognizing the appropriateness of those thoughts, that speech, and that behavior, which then gives you the opportunity to uh, substitute those thoughts and your emotions with more wholesome ones, to refrain from unwholesome speech, and engage in wholesome speech instead, and likewise for actions and other choices. Uh, now, this is, this is actually the definition of satisantajana. And uh, so it is, not only is uh, Yoniso uh, uh, Manisakara, yeah, having a little mental blank space, not only is uh, Yoniso Manasakara, the food that uh, nurtures sati and sampajana, it is also the manifestation of these. Because the state of sati sampajana is the most appropriate way for the mind to engage one's ongoing experience. So that was a great question that Alex asked, and uh, I, I wish he'd been here to give us his feedback, but thank you, Alex. I do appreciate it. Mike is next. Yes, Mike is next. And I am probably going to, I gotta look, see what time, what, when I should cut this short. Well, I'll, okay, anyway, I'm, I, I might not get through all the questions, is what I'm saying. <laughs> We're going to look at Mike. So Mike had asked, um, I was wondering if you could talk more about the significance of the Kriyas and the best way to work with them. Since the Mahasi retreat I did in May last year, most of my sits have included some form of involuntary arm movements, some vigorous arm and hand flapping, sometimes it's smoother yoga-like postures. Often it is accompanied by tension in the middle of the head. 
I attended another retreat last week and the energy disappeared on the third day, but a day after I returned the movements, uh, we're back again. Prior to the retreat, I had also sometimes started getting odd facial contortions. It's nothing unmanageable, although it's not particularly enjoyable either. I'd just like to know the best way to work with the energy as it has been quite some time since it originally began. Now, this is something that I wish I had taken the time to explore much more thoroughly uh, myself uh, rather than just leaving it at the level of, well, this is something that happens and it happens to everybody and it happens to a greater, lesser degree. And the best thing that you can do uh, is just, uh, you know, let, uh, let it happen, let it work its way through. Uh, I, I have gone a little farther than that when I'm, uh, uh, when I'm uh, instructing somebody that's going through this or when I'm leading a retreat and, you know, there'll often be quite a few people in the room that are dealing with this. I, I, do, have, I do have a few clues of, of ways to deal with this. Um, one of the things is if the, to the degree which you can uh, clearly experience energy movements in association with the involuntary bodily movements, you might be able to uh, recognize uh, sort of blockages uh, that seem to be related to those movements. And um, I find that uh, a, a lot of the people that are experiencing this can do that. And then I suggest that what you do is focus your energy or your attention on the energy movements that you feel in association with those blockages and see if uh, the energy won't uh, follow attention. So see if you can't move the energy through that blockage or sometimes by focusing your attention beyond the place where the blockage seems to be, kind of draw the energy through the point where it's blocked. And that, that was just, uh, that's, that's something that I discovered that, uh, that I could do and that I've taught to people. Now, since then, I've taught people, I've led retreats with people who have way more experience with uh, uh, various kinds of energy practices. And um, I realize that there is a tremendous complementarity between uh, meditation and yoga, qigong, um, uh, tai chi, of course, and there's another martial art that I'm trying to remember the name of where uh, you're always using the other person's energy, you know, there's, rather than... Aikido? Uh, Aikido, yes, right, Aikido. And, uh, you know, I've had, I've had students in retreats who are very familiar with these practices and who have been able to, to take the whole retreat and offer uh, daily sessions of Qigong or uh, Aikido and things like this. And, and almost everybody in the retreat has found that it has helped them to work with the, the energy movements and the uh, involuntary movements that are associated with it. And so uh, this is one of the things that I feel needs to be uh, developed further and integrated in with uh, uh, the 10 stages of the mind illuminated 
is a uh, is a somatic component that includes working with body energies. Um, also, a somatic component that involves working with how emotions manifest in the body. So I've I've recognized that there's a fairly large scope uh, for uh, bringing other techniques and uh, for people who've been able to devote much more time to working with these things, they'll do a better job than I, I mean, if, if I were 30 years old now, then uh, that's, that's the direction that I would be moving in uh, to incorporate it into what I teach. And uh, I, I think I need to focus on other things, but I see that as a large gap in my own training. And it's something that uh, I continue to invite uh, people in the teacher training courses who have a strong background in this area to uh, work towards some some sort of way of uh, incorporating this in the most effective and efficient way into into the ten stages, uh, both to deal with the the energetic and the involuntary movement aspect that is very very closely associated with unification of mind, and so. Uh, since everybody's going to experience that, they should be able to work with it, but also the emotions. Now, part of the reason that I didn't have these experiences um, in the course of my life and the development of my spiritual path is I'm one of these people that I've been mostly in my head all of my life. And uh, for a good part of my life, I was totally out of contact with my emotions. Other people could look at me and tell what emotion I was experiencing, but I had no clue. So, you know, I was, I was unfortunately, uh, uh, and I, I know I'm not, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a rare occurrence. There's a lot of people that are like this. Very much in my head, very much not in touch with my body, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, also not as in touch with my emotions as I should be. So it's not just for the sake of uh, dealing with involuntary movements and energy currents. It's also the, uh, uh, it's also for dealing with the emotional aspect, the cleaning up, the purifications, uh, and which is an extremely important part of the spiritual path. And uh, it's, it's something that is not really present to a sufficient degree in and any of the traditions that uh, we have available right now. So, um, I would strongly endorse working with uh, some very competent teacher in uh, something that has to do with uh, uh, these uh, with energy movements. In the body, uh, so, so there's Kriya Yoga and there's Kundalini Yoga. Uh, I'd be very careful with either of those to make sure that I got somebody who really knew what they were doing, because uh, you know I we heard some horror stories about what can happen. But Qigong, Tai Chi, things like that are, I think, really, really productive and safe ways to learn to deal with these. I wish Mike was here to give me some feedback on my comments there, but um, uh, good luck with it, Mike.
has Adrian next? Yep. Okay. Okay, Adrian has a friend who is having problems with the practice. He has social anxiety, which makes working on the Eightfold Path uh, either impossible or extremely difficult. The intensity of the hindrances and ego is such that his attempts to progress through the stages have been cyclic for more than two years. Falling off the practice, falling asleep while trying to meditate, we wonder whether a retreat would change critical conditioning that would allow to him to sustain a regular practice. We have heard that retreats do put you on the higher stages, but people fall again back to the start when they leave the retreat. Uh, well, let me start by correcting that last statement. That uh, if you've uh, if you've fallen back to where you started from before you did the retreat, then um, there is something questionable uh, about um, the way you're practicing or perhaps the suitability of the practice you're doing. Uh, now, it's true that everyone is going to fall back from the heights that they reach at the end of a retreat, especially if you do a longer retreat, two, three weeks or something like that that there is going to be some falling back, but you shouldn't go all the way back to the place that you started. Um, well, unless at the end of the retreat, you don't maintain a practice. And maybe that's what's happening in the case of this person here. Um, although they haven't done a retreat yet. But, um, you know, uh, as I was reading this, Adrienne, there was a number of red flags went up for me that basically say, that perhaps this person is looking to meditation for things that they perhaps should be uh, looking to a therapist for. And um, I don't want to discourage them from doing meditation, but uh, that perhaps if they were doing some therapy along with the meditation and being extremely gentle with themselves in the meditation, that uh, that might work much better. Uh, I, I, I could change my mind if I talked to this person directly or if I had more information, but I would be leery of having them go into a retreat. I would be afraid that uh, the internal processes that are manifesting themselves uh, in their attempts to, medit uh, to meditate might just just blow up on them in a retreat situation. The intensity of retreat can be can be tremendous. As a matter of fact, it it, uh, it always is. And if if problems like this arise uh, in daily meditation, when you go to meditating for eight or more hours a day, day after day, uh, the intensity can be seriously overwhelming. I've seen I've seen it. People who've had to leave, leave retreats after a day or two, I people, you know, I, I, I would be hesitant to look towards a retreat as a resolution of this, at least until the person has perhaps worked with a therapist and, as I say, continued with their attempts at meditation but being very gentle with themselves. So, Adrienne, I, I, uh, I wish you the... Uh, you and your friend, the best of luck with this. And uh, I hope your friend would be uh, 
open to considering the idea uh, that what meditation is doing is is bringing things to the surface that uh, he could really, or I don't know if the gender is clear here, he or she could clearly benefit uh, from some therapy. Uh, And uh, as a matter of fact, that's probably true of most people. Uh, So encourage your friend not to see it in any way as a stigma but as a very sensible approach. If you try to meditate and you have the things of this uh, intensity arise, then uh, that's a good indication that you would, be, you would benefit from therapy and not that anything's more wrong with you than with most other people. But, uh, uh, yeah, that would be my advice. So good luck with it, Adrian. All right. I think... Uh, I think I might make the next question my last question. Uh, so now Alexander, he said he, he knew he wouldn't be here tonight. Um, I was tempted to cherry pick some other questions after this, but okay. Um, <clears throat> oh, interesting. Alexander's question is, uh, relates to what I was talking about a few minutes ago. He says, in the last Q&A, you mentioned that you are exploring the role of additional practices to develop body awareness. I wonder what falls in this category and how it relates to the stages. Feldenkrais, yoga, qigong uh, can be done without explicitly working with energy and develop general body awareness. Uh, or are you thinking more in lines of working with energy itself and trying to feel it and learning to lead it? Well, the... The yoga teachers uh, that I have dealt with uh, explicitly work with uh, energy and and prana as a part of the yoga. And likewise, the Qigong teachers that I uh, have met and are are friends with and who have taught me a bit of Qigong, uh, which I wish I spent more time practicing, they are, are well. They're they're all Chinese or Asian, and uh, it's as far as they're concerned, it's totally about chi. It's totally about energy. Um, so I don't think there's anything necessarily uh, wrong with uh, uh, doing methods that develop general body awareness, but um, I think that that. Uh, that might be a good entry point, but uh, I would encourage uh, going uh, to the next step and working with teachers who uh, are uh, directly concerned with the uh, energy aspect of this, um, whether they call it prana or chi or, or, or what. Uh, these, these methods, they are, they are very rich. They have a lot to offer. And uh, so the question continues, what relationship do you see in the training of such practice to the stages in TMI? Or is this more or less independent? I see it as being complementary in the entire process because the increase in body awareness is going to be, it's going to increase awareness in general. And it's also going to be very helpful in increasing introspective awareness, 
uh, and awareness of how emotions manifest in the body. So that's going to be complementary to the purification processes in stage five and the ongoing awareness of uh, on, ongoing development uh, development of awareness right through stage six. Uh, then when you get into the uh, uh, adept stages where the uh, the energy becomes very prominent and all these movement, movements and things like that, then uh, it's going to be uh, even more so uh, more useful. So I see it as uh, something that uh, would have... Uh, would have the value uh, to begin those practices, uh, you know, as early in the process of the 10 stages as you could. Just talking about the benefit that they would have when you reach the point where unification of mind is producing a lot of movement and sometimes really strong energy currents that can, can be uncomfortable. Um, the people that I've seen that already have done a lot of energy work and familiar with it, have, don't have anywhere near the kinds of problems that uh, some other people do. So, uh, to, it, it, and of course, it, does, it wouldn't hurt to begin at stage eight, but think of how much better it would be if you had already started doing something like Qigong uh, or uh, yoga that emphasized the energetic or uh, prana, kriya component. Uh, back when you were beginning stage one, two, or three. So that's, that, that's where I would see it fitting in. The body scan and the style of Yuba Kin is, is um, um, it's something that a few people have found helpful, but uh, also there are people that have done the Goenka retreats and have done the body scanning as a part of that, uh, for whom uh, it's created uh, a certain degree of uh, aversion to uh, uh, that they've had to deal with when uh, when energy movements and, and body movements start to arise. So uh, that's something that I'm going to have to say. Uh, what my observations are fairly mixed on, and I don't have the knowledge to. Uh, to stay much more than that, but I've seen, I've seen both value and I've seen both problems uh, arising out of that body scan method. So I hope that uh, hope that gives you the answer you were looking for, Alexander. Okay, I, I, I'm going to cherry pick another couple of questions because they're pretty easy ones, but I think they're uh, they're worth addressing. So um, one is about uh, intention. Jean-Michel Moreau, uh, can you talk a bit in detail about intention and holding intentions? How does one develop a sensitivity and ability to be mindful of intentions? and to evoke them like we do with loving-kindness and metta. I have an example of what works and doesn't work. 
but I don't know how to generalize it. What works during breath meditation, I mentally say vividness, as I'm mindful of the vividness of the breath waning. What doesn't work? In walking meditation, I've heard the instruction to notice the intention to move before you move, and I can't seem to detect it. My goodness, I, I seem to recall having answered this question already. Um, okay, what attracted me to it was the first line, though. And that is, intention is, intention lies behind everything we uh, think, say, or do. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And what, um, you know, at the end of the overview chapter, I try to frame the, uh, the practices for all of the 10 stages as being nothing more than forming and holding appropriate intentions, uh, intentions that are appropriate to that stage in the practice. And I do that uh, in, in the hopes of helping people to recognize that this is not something that you need to strive at, to recognize that it's not something that you do. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in that discussion of intentions, I point out that, that really forming intentions is the only thing our mind can do. And whether or not those intentions manifest uh, has to do with all of the machinery down the road and uh, even the environment that we're in when the intention is formed. Uh, that, that nothing, that it, intentions are really the only thing that we do. And uh, setting a ground for recognizing that intentions arise and uh, the intentions that become conscious and that we act on are the ones that some kind of consensus of different parts of the mind system has been arrived at. What I'm trying to do is to guide people to make a simpler interpretation of the instructions to avoid striving. And what I've been finding is that uh, some people will take the instructions to do with intentions and they'll make intention, they'll, have, they'll do just the opposite of what I'm trying, hoping to help them to do. They'll say, okay, intention, there's this thing called intention. I have to learn to understand it. I have to learn to work with it. Um, I'm not sure what it is. So this is going to be really, you know, I've got to put a lot of effort into this. And uh, I, I need to get somebody to explain it. And, you know, intention is um, the, you, you form the, you, you, you feel like, oh, I'd love to have a cup of tea right now. You form the intention to get up and walk into the other room and make a cup of tea. And that you form the intention and you sustain the intention. You might uh, get sidetracked along the way and uh, put something away that you notice that you'd left out. Somebody might speak to you and you might, but you'll, the intention remains and you'll eventually end up in the kitchen turning on the hot water and making yourself some tea. And it's that simple with forming and sustaining intentions. And that and intention is, uh, intention is whether, whether we're conscious of it or not, intention is really what we're doing throughout our lives. And to, I'm encouraging people to understand that and recognize that, uh, not make it into something that's big and uh, complicated and difficult. So I'm not even sure that that is uh, 
uh, original intention. <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure that's the original intention behind Jean Michel's question, but I. I honestly recall having answered exactly that question previously. So I'm just going to go beyond it. And, uh, oh, we're already an hour and a half. Uh, uh, the other question that I wanted is, how important or helpful do you think it is for beginning students to work with an instructor trained in the approach taught in the mind illuminated? And I would say what I was just talking about is a good example. It's very easy to misunderstand. So, uh, now, if you, don't, if you don't have access to an instructor trained in the approach, I encourage you, please go right ahead. I've tried, I've tried to make this as close to do-it-yourself as I could. And so, uh, you know, but if you do have an opportunity, if you do have access to an instructor who has been trained in the mind-illuminated approach, then... It's going. It, you, it's inevitable that you're going to misunderstand and misinterpret a few things, uh, especially if you've uh, done some practice or followed another teacher in the past. So what I would, uh, I, you know, even if you're working on your own, what'll happen is you'll go back and you something that you misunderstood previously or had interpreted in in terms of. Uh, the way you had previously understood things, you'll go back and, and the basis of your meditation experience that you've had, you'll, you'll recognize and you'll understand what it is. But if you have the opportunity to work with a teacher, then uh, it can save you a lot of time. It can smooth the road for you a lot. Um, so, yeah. And it's 7.30 on the dot. I think that's a perfect time to bring this to a close. And... So I thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. I hope you got some uh, value out of this. I enjoyed it. And so I'll see you for the next one of these that we managed to put together. Thank you. Thanks.